following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. You can grab your Bibles, find your way back to your seat, or find your way to your seat and then grab your Bibles, whichever is uh, doable for you, and open to John chapter 16. We're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 16. And we're going to begin in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 15. I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now for our time in your word to be fruitful, and that your spirit, of whom we read now, would indeed illuminate our minds and hearts to hear and receive from your, your own mouth, what it is we must know, what it is we must believe, what it is we must do. Oh, Father, we pray, God, for those who are not here because of sickness, because of life circumstances or other mediating circumstances that do not allow them to be here. We pray, God, that you would comfort them and encourage them in your spirit, that they would find time to meditate and dwell on your word. We pray for those who are watching and listening through the live stream, that they too would be encouraged, though not with us, would still be uh, lifted up and encouraged by your word. We pray, Lord, for those who are not here because of sin or neglect. God, we pray that you would confront them again by your spirit, convict them of their sins, and draw them to you and restore them to your body. We pray for all those who would hear the words preached of the gospel that do not yet believe, that you would so work in their life and in their heart to receive it with joy and gladness, that it would bear fruit. We love you, Lord, we now pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered, I have a bit of a theological question, have you you ever wondered or considered what the purpose of the Holy Spirit was or what it plays in the larger story of God's redemptive history? A lot is said about the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, and as much is made of the Holy Spirit in Christian theology, and rightly so, 
But have, have you ever considered the role the Spirit plays in the larger story of God's redemptive history? That is, what God is doing and has been doing and continues to do throughout the world, orchestrating, orchestrating and ordaining all things that would come to pass. So we know that Christians have the Spirit, as it were, the Spirit who dwells within us. But what role does the Spirit play on the grander stage of the world? Not simply in our own life, but in the life of those around us, particularly the unbelieving world. Because much is said about the Holy Spirit's ministry to us as Christians. He's our comforter and our helper and our intercessor and our guider and much more. But does he have any relevance to the unbelieving public outside of the church? Well, John records that Jesus would answer that last question with a resounding yes. The work of the Spirit is as relevant to the unbelieving world as it is to the believing community we call the church. Of course, that ministry or that work is different to the body and to the world. But Jesus here speaks of the Spirit doing a particular kind of work. We see convicting work in the world through the body. So what we see in the passage this morning then, that we've read here, verses 4 through 15 of chapter 16, is that the Spirit actually will play a pivotal role in the, in the bringing about of God's redemptive purposes throughout all of the world. And so considering this, as we study our text this morning, I want to invite you to examine the kind of Christianity that you possess. Okay, well, of course, I'm being a bit exaggerated here because there's only really one kind of Christianity, the true Christianity, the one who believes and confesses Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became man, suffered a death, though he did not sin, was put in a tomb, risen again on the third day, ascended to the Father, sits at his right hand, makes intercession for us, and in whose death all believers, those who have faith in Christ, receive the forgiveness and pardon of sin. Any Christianity outside of that is false. There's only one kind of Christianity, just as there is only one kind of truth. But if you'll humor me for just a moment, I think we can all recognize that, that Christians tend to live out their faith with differing levels of intentionality and even differing peculiarities. And it's those actions, or in some cases those inactions, that do, in fact, have an effect on the world around us. So what I want us to explore today is that intersection there between the way we live as Christians and the impact that our life makes on the world as Christians. There in the middle is where Jesus seems to be speaking. And he helps us understand that the Spirit is essential in both of those realms. How we live and behave as a Christian and how the world is impacted by our living as Christians. And therefore, we must all strive to be the kind of Christians or to possess the kind of Christianity that is so led or is influenced by the Spirit that we are inevitably used by the Spirit in the Spirit's witness to the world. 
Now, if you're not quite tracking yet with that, just stick around and I trust you'll soon, I hope, see what I'm saying. If you're taking notes, the main idea this morning from the text is this, that the Spirit is necessary to the redemptive purposes of God's plan for the world, bringing conviction and illumination. The Spirit is necessary to the redemptive purposes of God's plan for the world, bringing conviction and illumination. We're going to explore that statement really in three parts. The first is the necessity of the Spirit. The second will be the conviction of the Spirit. And the third will be the illumination of the Spirit. Necessity, conviction, and illumination. The Spirit is necessary to the redemptive purposes of God's plan for the world, bringing conviction and illumination. Let's consider the first, necessity of the Spirit. Just notice there in the second part of verse 4, your Bible may break up verse 4 between paragraphs. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me, that is to the Father, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What's happening here? Well, Jesus' departure here is necessary. It's, it's necessary for Jesus to go that the Spirit might come. Now, that's not meaning that Jesus and the Spirit cannot occupy the same terrestrial place. There's not some metaphysical incompatibility happening here. They are, of essence, the same, though distinct in their personhood. What Jesus is actually referring to is the necessity of him leaving and the Spirit being sent or the Spirit coming in order to progress or move on to the next chapter, if you will, of God's purposes and plans unfolding in the world. So for God's intentions and purposes and plans to be fulfilled, Jesus must go, and the Spirit must come. To use a $10 word, Jesus' departure is eschatologically necessary. That is, in the grand scheme of what God is doing in bringing the world to its ultimate fulfillment and purposes according to His plan, it's necessary that Jesus would go. Meaning that in Jesus' leaving and in the Spirit's coming from the Father and the Son, we see in that the fulfillment of God's purposes. That they would continue through the Spirit to be accomplished just as they were through Jesus. And that the kingdom of God would be further established. Jesus comes and he inaugurates the kingdom and he will do so through his life and death and his resurrection and he will send the Spirit to continue the ministry that he began to his people. The purposes of God would continue to be accomplished. The kingdom of God would continue to break into the world and be established. And this is why Jesus will say it's actually advantageous to Christians that he go and the Spirit come. It's needful that Christ depart. The next order of the business of the unfolding plot of God's redemptive narrative not only just requires that Jesus go, but it's supported by the reality that Jesus sends the Spirit to continue his work and to advance his mission. This is simply the will of the Father 
and bringing all things according to the purpose and counsel of his own will. Well, understandably, the disciples are grieved by this. They're sorrowful over the leaving or the departure of Jesus. And of course, this is understandable. This is their teacher, their rabbi. They are beginning to understand him as much more than that. And he has just told them that he will leave. Of course, their grief is understandable, but given the larger implication of Jesus' words here, which we've just unpacked a little bit, really this sorrow and this grief is, is, is unwarranted. And Jesus tells them they don't need to be sorrowful. Because I have said these things, he says in verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart, but nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go. Your sorrow is ultimately unwarranted. See, Jesus, remember, has already said that because of the Spirit, which will come and which he will send, the disciples will go on to do greater works than Jesus will have done. And he's already espoused the nearness of his presence that the Spirit is, that he does not leave them and will not leave them, he says, as orphans. So the presence, the ministering nearness and love and care of Jesus is still near to his people in the Spirit. So here now Jesus essentially declares that nothing is lost in his leaving and much is gained in the Spirit's coming. There is nothing they forfeit in Jesus' departure, but so much to their advantage that they gain when the Spirit comes. Well, this is simply just an encouragement to the disciples as it should be to us. That Jesus, as he has said before, will not leave us or abandon us on our own to figure things out, but sends to us his own spirit to guide us, to lead us, and that this spirit is necessary to continue the work that he had begun. And what was accomplished in his death is applied to believers through the spirit. We are empowered and equipped by the spirit to go and proclaim that which Jesus has done. And so we must not think, as sometimes we're probably tempted to, that the Spirit is somehow less effective in, in teaching us or in leading us and guiding or helping or caring for us. Less effective than loving us as Jesus would be if Jesus were physically with us today. Well, the Spirit, of course, being God, is more than capable of this ministry. And perhaps, and especially when we consider the, the economy of the Trinity, who the Spirit is in relation to the Father and the Son, really the Spirit as God, sharing the same divine essence as the Father and the Son, but unique in His personhood and unique in His role. When we consider the economy of the Trinity, the Spirit is uniquely suited in His very person to do just this kind of ministry to us and to do the kind of work he has sent into the world to do because he eternally proceeds from the Father and from the Son. He is shared in unity and in perfect completion with the Father and the Son and the Godhead and what we would understand as perfect and complete love. So we must consider it a, a great privilege to be born and to be born again in the age of the Spirit, 
However interesting and privileged and special it would have been to walk with Jesus, to spend time speaking with and learning and sitting at his own feet. Jesus says that it is to our advantage that he go. And so the spirit whom he sends is not less effective than Jesus' own personal ministry. We are privileged to have God the Holy Spirit dwell in our midst and even in us. So the necessity of the Spirit is laid out clear here. and That's a means to encourage the saints to receive and rejoice in the gift that the Spirit is. And we will need the Spirit because of the Spirit's work in our life and in the world. So the necessity of the Spirit being here displayed, consider the second part of our main idea, that he brings conviction to the world. Just in verses 8 through 11, we understand that the Spirit's job is to convict the world. And of course, several aspects of the Spirit's ministry has already been laid out by Jesus in previous chapters in this gospel. But here, Jesus outlines, we see three ways the Spirit will bring further clarity to the person and work of Jesus. He says in verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We see that the Spirit comes to bring conviction, to give clarity about who Jesus is. It's meant to shine a kind of light in the world about who they believe Jesus is and who Jesus really is. The clarity, however, does not come from this direct intervention of the Spirit into the world. That's an important caveat we need to understand. It's not as the world has some kind of universal vision of the Spirit who teaches them about Jesus. No, instead, we see that it's through the disciples themselves as they obey and serve and embody the teachings and the commandments of Christ that the Spirit does this work. So as the Spirit works in the world, he does so through the church that is in the world. We'll see in just the next chapter how Jesus prays to the Father that the disciples who are to do this witnessing are to remain steadfast as they remain in the world. He does not wish to to take them out of the world, for then the purposes of God could not be completed. But the church, the disciples, are left in the world with the Spirit so that through them, the Spirit would do this convicting work. What does it mean to convict? When we said that the Spirit will convict the world, it means that He will expose or shine a light on and declare the guiltiness of the world. This world which takes up opposition to Christ has a hatred towards Christ and therefore towards his bride, the church. Or or in other words, the Spirit's job will be to equip and empower believers like us to live in such a way that by its very nature will bring a stinging clarity to the world's hostility to Christ and to his ways. That is the method that Jesus intends for the church to use. 
live according to the Spirit in such a way that as we do so in front of the world, we speak to the world about the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit uses our life as we submit ourselves to Christ in his ways, and it shines a light on the hostility of the world. And so he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Well, concerning this sin, the Spirit, we're, so, we're told, will come to convict the world of their own belief, or rather unbelief. And how will this happen? Well, they're going to press upon the world the belief of the Spirit-filled community that gathers before them. This is the mirror of the church that displays the gospel to the world. And when the church looks at the church, when the world looks at the church, they see the belief, they see the faith, and it stingingly convicts them of their own unbelief, even if they're ignorant to it. That is the convicting nature of faithfulness the church comes and is called to display. Because the world is set in unbelief, because of the problem of sin and corruption of the heart, the world does not often know or fully understand the precarious nature it finds itself. Its future truly is precarious. Because saving belief, as much as we may have tried, cannot be discovered through purely intellectual avenues. It can't be earned from any amount of striving or good works. The kind of saving belief that the world does not have and yet the church does, the kind of saving belief that marks off the people of God from the world is a gracious working of the Father in the heart of man. And that work convicts us and it brings our mind's attention and our heart's affection to center and rest on Christ, on whose mercy we as Christians fling ourselves. We fully cast ourselves and it's in that drawing to Christ that the world sees in our life that shines and exposes their own unbelief because it causes a rift. It distinguishes those who love Christ from those who do not. It shows that those who do not claim and trust the righteousness of Jesus have chosen sides. There is no neutrality in the world. The church merely draws the line. And so as we live out our faith before the world, the Spirit working through us brings conviction to the world regarding their own unbelief. We saw, saw it earlier in chapter 15. Verse 19, If the, you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there is a distinction, a necessary and unavoidable distinction that will happen when the Spirit works in us to save us, to change us and transform us, to gather us into those communities of faith like foundation, and then send us into the world to live faithfully that will shine a mirror of the gospel and it will either guide a light to those whom God is saving or it will blind the eyes of those who are proud and rebellious against God. And so he says then concerning righteousness. 
he comes to convict. Well, concerning this righteousness, the world must ultimately be brought to the reality that their own righteousness amounts to what Isaiah would call filthy rags. That righteousness that we know is only obtained through a truly righteous source. And this must be made evident to those who are in desperate need of of, of such a gift when the world lives faithfully, obediently, reverently, and gloriously to Christ in the midst of the world. The world will see not only the conviction of their own sin because of their unbelief, but the failure and the futility of their own righteousness. Because our righteousness, which makes us right with God, does not come from within us, but from a third party. We do not earn it. We do not find it. It is given to us by Christ. It is his righteousness, obtained only through a righteous one. And so the Spirit is sent to work within the church, into the body of Christ, you and I, so that through the church, the righteousness of Christ, which we have come and possess and which we have inherited, would be made visible. And in the making of Christ's righteousness visible in our own life, the Spirit convicts the world of the failure and the futility of their own righteousness. They're under then such condemnation. Well, the church then, empowered by the Spirit, which is sent by Christ, and dwelled by His Spirit, is like a walking testimony of the perfect righteousness of Christ, His sinlessness, His moral perfection and uprightness, His complete and absolute submission to the will of God, His obedience to the law, His sacrifice, His purity, and our inheritance or imputation of that righteousness. We're like a billboard that speaks about the righteousness of Christ we have not earned but was given to us by God's grace. And that billboard speaks loudly to those who are trying to earn their own righteousness in the world, who think that they can serve enough, do enough, say enough, spend enough, but righteousness will always be out of their grasp, the kind of righteousness that restores them to a holy and perfect God. No, our testimony heralds the truth that our righteousness is utterly deficient. And so our very lives, as we live faithfully as Christians, should speak to the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith and not by works, as Paul says in Ephesians. That righteousness comes from Christ and not from within ourselves. But beyond just justification, which is the declaring of our positional righteousness before God, beyond justification, which is the fact that we've been declared righteous, it's, it's also our righteous living in the Spirit that will bear witness to the false righteousness of the world. While the demographic of God's people must surely be diverse, as we pray that it is, and because of that diversity, we will see and possess in our own body a wide range of preferences and opinions on all sorts of matters. We will nonetheless see and experience and feel and live in a common refrain of righteousness, of right, faithful living that can be heard and seen and felt and known even by those with whom we may come into contact. Our values, right? 
and our commitments as Christians reflect the righteousness of Christ that we have inherited. All of this would quite often cause us then to stand in contrast and in even opposition to the world's own standard of righteousness, which is in discontinuity from God's. We will often find ourselves in opposition to the world's standard of righteousness because, as is the case with every fallen creature on the planet, the world's standard of righteousness falls short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is true of every one of us. Only in Christ, and only empowered by the Spirit, are we able to walk uprightly before God in this world. And that indeed convicts those who believe that they can do so otherwise. Do you begin to see how the church is shaping the witness of the gospel in the world through the Spirit? Our belief shines a light on the unbelief of the world. Our inherited righteousness, not earned by ourselves, shines a light on the deficient righteousness that the world pretends will grant them favor with God or the good life. But lastly, he says, that the, world, the Spirit will come to convict the world concerning judgment. And concerning judgment, the Spirit will convict the world really by exposing their blindness. He says there that he will convict the world concerning judgment because, in verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. Well, who is the true ruler of this age? This is Satan. It's the very enemy of God. He's the adversary of God's people. And he has subjected the world to the same perverseness that he enjoys in opposition to God. Perverseness like seeing the true God as something to be mocked instead of honored, revered, or worshipped. Pleasure and appearances as, as ultimate things to be pursued. Humility and service and love of others as something that's weak or naive. And even the moral judgments of the world, like Satan's, are perverse and wrong. It is only by God's grace, because we are made in the image of God, do we see glimpses of true and genuine selflessness in those who are not Christians. But all of the moral judgments of the world, as they are under his sway, are perverse and wrong. But it is the work of the Spirit through the church which exposes the perverseness and the unrighteousness or the wickedness of the judgment of the world. The Apostle Paul, who's speaking about the proclamation of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, puts it this way. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Listen to this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he says, the gospel sometimes seems to be ineffective when Paul preaches it because 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. It's the same language that Jesus used here. The God of this world, the ruler of this age, is at work in opposition to the kingdom and the promises and purposes of God in such a way, under God's hand of sovereignty, to darken or to blind the minds of unbelievers. And even the Apostle John, who, who writes this gospel, were elsewhere write in 1 John chapter 5, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or your translation may have said, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So when Jesus says in verse 11 that the ruler of this world has been judged and stands condemned, it reveals really the grave danger of those who are under the thumb of the enemy, the ruler of the world. It reveals the grave danger of those under the thumb of the enemy who will soon themselves, like Satan, be condemned and judged. And how is this blindness made apparent? How is the darkness exposed? Well, the apostles who will receive first the Spirit will go and preach the gospel. And as he says in 2 Corinthians, the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, will shine into the darkness. It will expose the decay and the corruption of the human heart. It will illuminate all of the vast caverns of idolatry and unrighteousness and corruption of the human heart. And it will bring that heart into contrition and draw it to repentance. It will at the same time offer the hope and comfort of the power of the cross as he preaches Christ and Christ crucified. And this message is the message that must continue to emanate from the church today. The message of Christ and him crucified, the light of the world speaking into the dark confines, not just of the world, but of the human heart. The Spirit directs us and equips us, and we are faithful to proclaim. And so the Spirit's work in the world through the church is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. But it's important to note before we move on to the rest of the passage that the nature of this conviction that the Spirit brings to the world through the church is not ultimately a final conviction. Rather, this conviction is designed to bring men and women of the world out of the world to bring them under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to recognize their need of Christ, to look on the cross and see on it the atonement, the sacrifice for their sin, and so turn from their sin, turn from their unrighteousness, turn from their false judgments in perverse and wicked ways, and to turn to Him who alone can truly set them free. The world sees the church Faithful, led by the Spirit, full of the grace and truth as we obey ourselves or, or submit ourselves to the obedience of God's Word. And the Spirit working through us convicts and God willing draws men and women out of the world to Himself. That's the conviction of the Spirit. Lastly, in verse 12 15, I want to consider the illumination of the Spirit. 
For he goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so the ministry of the Spirit is not simply one of conviction, but of revelation, one of illumination. In reference, of course, to the apostles like Paul, Peter, John, the Spirit will come and guide them to faithfully lay the foundation that the church will be built upon. The church will come to stand upon the foundation, Paul will say in Ephesians 2, that is laid by the apostle and the prophets. And this good deposit, this foundation, will then in turn be entrusted, as Paul tells Titus or Timothy, entrusted to other men who will in turn trust, entrust it to other faithful men, and so on and so on. And we see in the faithfulness of the church the preservation of the gospel for every generation. And that is the work of the Spirit guiding and leading first the apostles and their disciples in every generation to know and understand what it is Christ has spoken and what it is that God demands of his people. The truth that Jesus confronts us with and really comforts us with is this, that everything God intends for us to know Everything God intends for us to know and understand about who he is, about what he's like, what he desires of us, everything will be made known to us through the Spirit. What great knowledge we have of what the Scriptures would call the deep things of God, access to which we would not have if we did not possess the Spirit, if Christ did not ascend to the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to us. The plans and the purposes of God, though sometimes not fully known to us in the moment, are often opened up to us. They're made clear to us in time. In fact, the very heart of God himself, who desires to disclose himself to his people, to be revealed through his word to his people, can be known and felt through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who knows the mind of God. And it is the Spirit who makes known the mind of God to us. His mind and his heart. And so this means, friends, that you and I, we must be people of the Spirit. That is, we are to be Spirit-led. I, I know that's a common phrase in Christianity. Maybe you've heard it before, and maybe you've heard it so much that it really doesn't mean anything to you. But to be Spirit-led here, to be guided by the Spirit which is given to His people, simply is to understand that the Spirit is the illuminator of God's Word and His revelation to us. Peter will tell us that in the Gospel we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. And he has given us this revelation that we can be participants or partakers into the divine nature, knowing, understanding, and being blessed by our relationship with God through Christ. The Spirit illuminates that relationship through his word. 
And without the Spirit, we would still be ignorant of the purposes and the intentions of God. Again, the Apostle teaches us, Paul, of our need for the guidance of the Holy Spirit because we need to discern the will of God. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, the natural person, that's the, that's the one who lives not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen to what that means. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Do you want to understand the Spirit of God? You must discern it by God's Spirit. And God grants us His Spirit. He goes on to say, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Rhetorical answer, no one. But Paul will say, but we have the mind of Christ. Because the Spirit is given to us to open up God's word and his heart in his word to us, we can say that we have the mind of Christ and that we can accept and know and not see as foolishness, but as truly wisdom, the Spirit of God, his will, his purposes, his ways. We can make sense of the world in the way that no one else can because God in his graciousness gives us his Spirit in the heart of his revelation that leads us to knowledge. But what's at the heart of this knowledge? Look at verse 14. The Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Since all of the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is at the heart of the Spirit's work. It's the heart of all revelation that is guided by the Spirit himself. And Jesus sends the Spirit not simply to be a helper, but to be a drawer of men's souls to himself, that is, to Christ. Jesus is at the heart of all revelation, at the heart of the Spirit's work. And the whole point of that revelation, which points to Jesus, he says, is the glory of his name. He will glorify me, that is, glorify me in the life of the church and in the conviction of the world. The glory of Christ is the end game for the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work in the life of a Christian, like you and I, if you are truly trusting, believing, and have repented of sin, the Spirit's work in the life of a Christian is supremely evident, or most clearly evident, when Christ is exalted and enjoyed above all else as the ultimate and greatest treasure of our hearts. That's the supreme evidence of the Spirit's work in a Christian's life, when Christ is exalted and enjoyed as the greatest treasure of our hearts. And so let us test ourselves and ask ourselves honestly, is the greatest treasure of our lives the truth and the privilege of knowing Christ? Is the glory of Jesus' name supreme in my life? Or is it a close second 
to whatever may be truly capturing my affections. The Spirit then established for Christians the what we could call the center of the bullseye for the Christian life. That in our faithfulness to Christ, the world would be brought under conviction of sin and rebellion. And they're pulled back from the brink of destruction. And they're saved that they may enjoy the fruit of everlasting life that comes from saving faith in Jesus. When we display and witness to the world our faith and their own unbelief is exposed and they, by God's grace, are drawn in to belief, they enjoy with us the fruit of everlasting life. Jesus intends for us and for his disciples to understand that he has sent the Spirit to aid us in our pilgrimage, in our exile, as Peter would call it, as we await the arrival of our King. Remember, we are talking about the intersection of the Spirit's work in our life, teaching and guiding us as we live faithfully, and the work that our life then has, the impact our life then has on the world. Jesus intends for us to live faithfully in dependence upon the Spirit as we are we pilgrim as exiles, awaiting the arrival of our King. And so this new era, which will one day dawn and usher in the restoration or the, the consummation of the kingdom that has only now been inaugurated, it will come, friends, on the coattails of the Spirit-led, Christ-exalting, world-convicting faithfulness of the church, of this church, and of many others. And it is to that day that we must look as, as we follow and obey and glorify Christ in this world through the Spirit. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, there is much... Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, so no derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Led life. Or as Paul would put it, we have not fully given ourselves to walking in the Spirit. But Lord, we pray that where we need to, we feel the stinging conviction of our own neglect, our failure to see and do what the Spirit has been showing and leading us. But we also know that you often work despite our our failures and our shortcomings and that it is in our repentance and our continual striving for for obedience not as a result of earning salvation but as a consequence of it that is a a startling display of the worth and the value of Jesus and so we ask simply that our humility and our repentance would be another note in the chorus of your grace to us in Christ, and that we would be a spirit-led, Christ-exalting, world-convicting church that would be freed from the temptations to earn or perform, but simply trust and obey, that we would do that we would obey in 
dependence upon the Spirit, and that you would use us in faithfulness to that work to do your greater purposes and work in the world through the Spirit. We're grateful to you, Lord, and we pray, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen.